Imagine a world where innovation knows no bounds. At BAE Systems Fast Labs, we're pioneering advanced technology and defense research, shaping the future of safety and security. Explore our website to uncover a realm of cutting-edge projects, collaborations, and visionary thinkers. Whether you're a tech enthusiast, a defender of freedom, or just curious, Fast Labs is where groundbreaking solutions are born. Join us and be part of the future today. Visit www.baesystems.com slash fastlabs. Welcome to From the Crow's Nest, a podcast on electromagnetic spectrum operations, or EMSO. I'm your host, Ken Miller, Director of Advocacy and Outreach for the Association of Old Crows. Thanks for listening. On today's episode, we are going to talk about the state of directed energy weapons and how our communities, the electromagnetic warfare and directed energy communities, are working together under the broad construct of EMSO. Uh, I'm very pleased to have with me today Mr. Mark Neese. He is the Executive Director of the Directed Energy Professional Society, or DEPS. Uh, he has been with DEPS now for about nine years. And prior to that, he had 37 years of service to the United States Air Force, including as the director of the High Energy Laser Joint Technology Office in the Office of the Secretary of Defense and the Air Force Research Lab in Kirtland. So when you talk about leading advocates in direct energy across DOD, industry, Congress, Mark is really at the top of the list. We've been working for the last few years to bring our communities together because of the natural synergy that exists between electromagnetic warfare and directed energy. So Mark, it's great to have you on From the Crow's Nest. Thanks for joining me. Well, thank you, Ken. I appreciate the opportunity to uh, talk a little bit about DEPS and the overflow, the cross-flow of information that happens between the Association of Old Crows and the Directed Energy Professional Society. We've both attended each other's conferences over the last few years, and it's been great to kind of get to know Depths a little bit more and, and looking forward to having that as part of our conversation. To basically start off, you know, I think most of our listeners probably know a lot about Depths because of that crossover that you mentioned. But could you tell us a little bit about Depths and kind of your mission and, and how you're structured in terms of, you know, what activities are on the horizon for you to kind of give our listeners a little bit of a, a foundation of, of who you are? Sure. Uh, the Directed Energy Professional Society was formed 22 years ago, specifically for the opportunity for educational outreach, advocacy, and communication within the directed energy community, which at the time was probably a little light in terms of uh, overall information uh, that was being distributed out to the, uh, to the broader communities at large. The programs were fairly large at the time. Uh, we had a couple of very focused programs working through the Air Force and then the Missile Defense Agency in the context of the Airborne Laser Program. A lot of innovative technology was coming out of the, that program and a means for the community to sit down in a collaborative environment and have um, an open dialogue. One of the things that makes DEPS unique is that... Um, we have the ability to hold classified and CUI presentations and manage the security aspects of those. And so that allows our community to, um, to really communicate at the appropriate classification level the information that's available, uh, both internal to the government as well as external to activities that are happening at our universities or national laboratories uh, and our industry partners. Yeah, I think that that's, you know, it's, it's something that's very similar to the AOC, too. 
in the, in the depths conferences that I've been to, I think one of the great things about it is, first of all, from the technology standpoint, the discussions, I mean, you go from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. with some of the deepest technical discussions I've ever heard at conferences. So if you're into directed energy, like th those are the conferences to go to. Um, but also like everyone in your community, all the right people are there at each, at each one. So you have that ability to engage across your community in an in-depth way that you oftentimes don't get in some other conference setting. So it, 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 they're, they're great events. I, it was funny with the first event that I went to at Depths was, I think it was the, your system symposium out in California. Um, Monterey. Monterey. Thank you. And, uh, a lot of people came up to us and like, what are you doing here? You're electronic warfare. You're not directed energy. And then the other, another half of the people came over here, over to me and said, oh, it's great that you're actually here because there's so much commonality between the two. Um, and so there's, I th we get this kind of that same feedback. And so I think it's really interesting that when you look at kind of the universal applications for directed energy weapons and electromagnetic warfare uh, technologies and capabilities that there is that the common ground that our communities really do need to come together and are coming together. So I wanted to kind of start out on kind of with an update on where we're at with directed energy systems. I wanted to have you on at the end of 2021 and uh, just scheduling and, and so forth. We weren't able to do that. So kind of looking here in early 2022, uh, what is the state of where are we at with directed energy and some of the things that have happened over the last few months that are particularly exciting for your community and for DEPS? Well, thanks. Uh, and, and I agree. I want to, I want to add that um, directed energy is part of the electromagnetic spectrum operation. And we both share an interest in that technology mm -hmm. area. Um, I am proud of the technical sessions that we hold at the DEPS events. That's one of our, the key features that uh, we, we focus on. So thank you for that compliment. Um, from a, a directed energy standpoint, we have a number of systems that are out there in what I will call the prototyping stage right now with all services. The Air Force has four counter UAS systems that are currently deployed, OCONUS, uh, working against the uh, class one, class two counter UAS capability. Three of those are laser weapon system capabilities. One of them is a high power microwave slash high power RF capability that uh, we are demonstrating capabilities to negate the effects of those small UAVs that are proliferating uh, in a number of places. The Navy has two deployed systems right now, well, I should say multiple deployed systems, two primary focuses with ODIN, their, uh, their Dazzler that looks at a counter sensor capability, as well as the high power capability with the solid state laser tech maturation slash um, laser weapon system demonstrator program that is out on the USS Portland. Uh, they did a um, pretty cool demo uh, in the Persian Gulf area, AOR, uh, here in the early December timeframe, and, uh, and quickly put that demonstration up uh, to advocate for the uh, capabilities of laser weapon systems protecting the, uh, the, the fleet. The Army has... Um, embarked upon a program called the Directed Energy uh, Mobile Shorad Capabilities. They've issued a contract for four of those systems to be delivered by September of 2022, run by the Army's Rapid Capabilities and Critical Technology Office. Um, they are also interested in long-term capabilities 
for the defense of forward operating locations uh, with the DEM SHORAD and have ongoing programs to look at additional higher power capabilities, both for HPM and HEL. And finally, what uh, we've recently seen is a reemergence of the Missile Defense Agency into the directed energy portfolio. They had a, a predominant position with the uh, Airborne Laser Program for a good number of years. And uh, as I said before, the technology that we harvested from that is allowing multiple of these uh, capabilities and prototypes that are out there now in creating a uh, industrial base that can manage and meet the uh, expectations of those various mission sets that we're trying to achieve. I think that's an interesting point with the, the the transition of the Missile Defense Agency that you just talked about, because you, you mentioned the the industrial base uh, kind of establishing that, and that's that's a key component to really building out the operational capabilities in each of the services to make sure that there's an industrial base ready to support as the services grow and build their directed energy capabilities. Uh, I was wondering, you know, going back, you mentioned in your intro, you know, advocacy on DE was pretty light in the early years when when DEPS first started up. And um, I think a lot of that maybe had to do with it being so lab focused, you know, here's what we're working on in various lab settings. But now, you know, as, as you just went over, each of the services have their demonstration or systems out in, out in real-time operations, kind of looking at the effects. Um, it's a completely different picture in 2022, heading into 2022, than it was even just five years ago. What are some of the things that, what were some of the key developments over the last several years that really kind of allowed Directed Energy to really take that big leap forward into really the operational conversation, you know, getting it to the, getting it into the field versus where maybe it had resided for too many years, so to speak, before DEPS really came on board with their advocacy. Well, that, that's a good point. And, and I, I guess on the high energy laser side of the house, it, uh, it really has evolved around the development of the fiber laser technology. Now, fiber laser technology is not new. It's been used in manufacturing um, for a number of years in commercial industry, and the Defense Department's ability to leverage that investment that's made in uh, precision cutting and welding uh, from the commercial industry aspects of that, and to, as I said, leverage that uh, that technology to the point where we could then have find a, a military application for it. Now that we have prototypes that are out there in these systems. What we're really developing now are the concepts of honing in on the concepts of operation and the sustainability, availability, and reliability of those systems once we put them in the hands of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines. So with the the developing the CONOPS and you mentioned sustainability, reliability, what are some of the things that you're looking forward to in the next year here that really kind of address those specific aspects? Uh, you are are there are there current current plans in the works to really kind of check some of those boxes, or is this going to be a longer term effort over that's going to take several years to really kind of make the the, the progress necessary that for that next step to be completed? I believe that um, 2022 holds a lot of promise for the directed energy community. We, uh, we will see the first delivery of the Navy's Helio system, their high-energy laser integrated uh, optical system, 
And that is unique because that is a fully integrated capability within their combat engineering capabilities uh, to really weaponize directed energy and make that part of the weapon set associated with a a ship-based capability. And so a fully integrated capability that will make determinations of, is this a good day to use the laser? Is it not a good day to use the laser? Can we use the laser and offset some of our kinetic effectors? Uh, We have, you know, both the directed energy effectors and the kinetic effectors, and then integrating that into that capability to determine the right mix uh, given the uh, conditions on any given day, I think are important. The Army is going to uh, take delivery of the four DEM Shorad capabilities or, or prototypes, and then over the 2022-2023 timeframe, integrate that into how does a platoon of directed energy capabilities operate in conjunction with all of the other capabilities that they have for forward operational base uh, protection. The Air Force is collecting the data from their deployed systems right now to determine how best do they do air-based defense, similar to that Army mission. And of course, the Marines also have that, but they want to develop that capability and demonstrate that from a, not necessarily from a base protection standpoint, but from an on-the-move type of capability. So they're taking on a little bit harder mission set, uh, but the Marines tend to be far more mobile than any of our other services. You mentioned uh, early on about the role that uh, Counter UAS is playing in terms of kind of putting the focus on on directed energy weapons and getting them out into the field. And I was reading an article about how with, with uh, Counter UAS on the Air Force Research Lab, the Thor system, that the tactical high power operational responder system, the Thor system. Could you talk a little bit about that in terms of is that another Air Force program that is it seems to be make, getting a lot of attention in some of the news. Where does that fit in terms of the services plans and, and so forth moving forward? So Thor is one of those four systems that the Air Force um, has taken to an operational deployment. Uh, it, is, it is out there operating OCONUS right now, um, and they're collecting the data on how effective that is. When you think of Thor as a high-power microwave slash high-power RF capability, it does not put a precision spot size on a target like we think of from the laser system. It puts up a wall. Um, and so any of the electronic systems that try to penetrate that wall are disabled and they fall to the ground. Um, and so because of that, it's kind of a, a unique application for counter UAS capabilities. The Army and the RICTO is paying attention to the deployment of Thor because they have also committed that if Thor is successful in its ongoing overseas experimentation campaign, that the Army is committed to acquiring a platoon of Thor systems for its forward operating base protection as well. So there's a lot of focus right now looking at the capabilities that come out of that high-power microwave system and what we can do to defend our operating locations against the threat set that comes from these small uh, class one, class two drones, which we read about in the paper almost every day as a, as a threat both to our overseas operations as well as some of our domestic areas of interest. And what we've been encouraged is that 
the Department of Homeland Security is looking at what the Department of Defense is doing with some of these systems to look for crossover opportunities to protect critical national infrastructure against this drone threat, as well as what we're doing for our overseas locations. Hello, everyone. I want to take a short break to thank BAE Systems Fast Labs for the continued support for our From the Crow's Nest podcast. I am pleased to be here today with Bill Watson, Chief Scientist at BAE Systems Fast Labs. Bill, it's great to be here with you. Now, BAE Systems Fast Labs is BAE Systems Research and Development and Production Organization. Can you tell us a little bit about Fast Labs as well as your background? Yes, and thank you for having me. A BAE Systems Fast Labs is dedicated to innovating disruptive next-generation solutions for the critical defense and intelligence challenges. Of course, electronic warfare is one of our key focus areas, but in addition to that, we also do research in autonomy and AI, sensing and response, advanced microelectronics, communications, and navigation. I've been working in the RF, that is radio frequency research community, for over 20 years, a short time in the United States Air Force, followed by specific research and development. My work in the last 20 years has been singularly focused on DARPA research and within the last 10 years at BAE Systems Fast Labs specifically. Technology we work on spans sensor processing to high-level sense making up to tactical and operational level autonomy and decision-making support. And one of the key differentiators about BAE Fast Labs is the research that we do uh, is intended to find its way to benefit the warfighter. This has been an important topic through many of our recent episodes here on From the Crow's Nest. Can you talk a little bit more about that technology? And for our audience, how does it change or affect our EW capabilities that we're trying to field? In our work with leading uh, DoD customers like DARPA or AFRL, we focus on developing technologies that will uh, advance future solutions from overcoming today's challenges to developing technologies never before thought to be possible. We then transition our technology to feelable products benefit our warfighters through partnership with BA Systems Electronic Systems product lines. As a specific example, I thought I'd use a movie you may or may not be familiar with. It was called Battle Los Angeles. It was from 2011. And in that movie, aliens had invaded. And what the characters in the movie found is that whenever they keyed their microphones on their radios, they could be easily geolocated and targeted. What the movie presented as science fiction for us is, in fact, science fact. This is the type of technology that we work on and exist today where the physics meets the real world. This sounds like absolutely fascinating work. What is the next area that you see for research and development? And if anyone is interested in learning more, how can they reach out to you? Well, we can't say too much because of the sensitivity of our work at classification levels. But in Fast Labs, we are always working on the future state. No matter what the future threats are, we will continue to focus on solving the hardest problems to benefit the warfighter. If you're interested in more information about Fast Labs, you can connect with us on our website at basystems.com slash fastlabs. Well, thank you, Bill, for joining me here on From the Crow's Nest. And now it's time to get back to our show. And, and when, when you talk about the kind of the universal application of directed energy and electromagnetic warfare, that commercial relevance and even just outside of DOD relevance, whether it's homeland security, um, or any of the other federal agencies, if, if you go through uh, a lot of their, I don't want to necessarily use the word threat in our traditional way, but a lot of the problems that they deal with oftentimes will focus on UAS, counter UAS issues, even whether it's Homeland Security or FAA 
or other agencies, you know, they, they have those same issues and concerns. And so some of these advancements in directed energy and electromagnetic warfare will have applications even outside of DOD that, you know, I think make kind of the, the, the advancements in our communities very interesting to, to follow because it's not just about what in the battlefield, but also the relevance in the commercial setting or the other federal agency setting. You're absolutely correct. I mean, we all remember two years ago, right around Christmas time, when you know a a drone shut down one of the major airports in the UK, and you know it operated for a couple of days with impunity uh, and disrupted air traffic, and so the ability to counter that and take that threat away, and you, you never know what the intention is. It may not be malicious. It may just be a hobbyist who's out there playing with his new Christmas toy, but nonetheless, it's impacting other operations, and in doing so. Um, we've got the ability to non-kinetically eliminate that threat, uh, you know, and with the HPM systems, we can recover them. And um, if they are non-threatening, we can return them to the owner with a stern warning that um, probably shouldn't operate your drone in this airspace again for a while. Going back to the the operationalizing of, of directed energy, uh, one of the areas that, you know, from an EW standpoint, we feel like we would be able to work very closely with uh, your community on is this notion of how to increase or rapidly increase operationalization of direct energy. Could you talk a little bit about some of the progress your community has made in terms of training on these directed energy systems? Obviously, if they're new to the field, you don't necessarily have the right people uh, in the right numbers across the services understanding these weapon systems, understanding how to use them, maintain them, um, be trained on them. But then, so could you talk a little bit about the training aspect? What are some of the steps that you see coming in the future on that, that could help with uh, the, the man training equip aspects across services on directed energy? Sure. It's, um, it's, it's a unique area uh, within the electronic warfare, which is an accepted technology within our warfighting capabilities. There's a lot of crossover opportunities for us with, you know, a modest amount of training. I wouldn't call it retraining, but additional training that comes with the operations of our high energy laser and our high power microwave systems. Um, you know, the big difference between EW technology and HPM technology is the persistence of the effect. Well, if all of the uh, man train equip piece of that on the front end has commonality with our electronic warfare capabilities that we currently employ within the Department of Defense, then there's a lot of crossover opportunity and retraining is not necessarily, it's it's more of just some additional training on the capabilities for that specific system. That being said, right now, these long-term experimentation campaigns that are out there uh, working are to gather that information directly and understand what, where can we find commonality in the manpower and the training and the specific technical skills from our, our warfighter capabilities. And then how do we leverage that existing training, that existing capability, and complement that with some of the additional work that needs to come from a directed energy uh, portfolio standpoint. So there's a lot for us to to really leverage off of the existing capabilities. Do, do you find that the, the services are working very closely and or closely enough with you, your community to be able to leverage those opportunities and to take those next steps? 
it's identifying the, the technical specialty skills that come right, within each of the services as they handle some of these capabilities and then leveraging what, uh, what we can add on there. I mean, one of the greatest things that I saw was uh, two years ago at the first Air Force experimentation campaign, a young staff sergeant, probably 20 years old, uh, who's operating the uh, controller for the weapon system while he talks to a group of, uh, of senior Air Force observers, and he's able to operate the system and talk while he's engaging the target. And it's because they, they fo- focused on an Xbox-type controller. And, and you know, to a guy like me, it's not intuitive, but to that 20-year-old sergeant, he said, this is intuitive to me. I, I can operate this system while he's looking at the screen and while he's talking, and the ability to do that was really a, a firm selling point on the capabilities associated with uh, the engagement of that weapon system. And he did that with probably three days worth of training on the weapon system to, uh, to be able to, uh, to go through that whole engagement sequence. I could probably have 10 years of training and I wouldn't be as intuitive as it is to some of the, the younger generations that are able to pick that up very quickly. So that's, that's pretty uh, interesting to hear how quickly they can adapt to some of these new technologies out there. Well, and that's, that's, I mean, part of the organized train equip piece of that is to find those skill sets that, you know, are inherent with, within certain groups and then understand how we can exploit that capability uh, and really simplify and modify the training um, to incorporate the engagement of directed energy capabilities within their, uh, their existing knowledge base and skill set. When, when you talk about the, the progress that you know, direct energy has made, it's basically an all of community effort on, on the advocacy front, you know, industry, uh, government, uh, DOD, and of course, Congress. And I know one of the, I think this is when you and I had first met at one of your depths events on Capitol Hill. Uh, you, you, you work very closely on Capitol Hill. We actually share some, you know, obviously some of the working groups there, the Directed Energy Caucus, the Electromagnetic Warfare Working Group. So, you know, we share co-chairs, share members on those on those caucuses. Could you talk a little bit about, you know, congressional education is huge uh, because Congress can help push DOD at the right time in the right place uh, and also provide a lot of support. But, you know, it's it's a challenge to keep members of Congress and staff educated on this and, 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 and the progress. Could you talk a little bit about DEP's efforts on Capitol Hill and, you know, where, where are we at with the, the congressional leadership, which is pretty strong, I think. And, and I think a lot of people are, are very pleased with some of the leadership we have on this, on, on the Hill. Well, I, thanks. And, and you know, I, I, I agree. That is a, a critical piece of what we do from an education and advocacy standpoint. The Direct Energy Caucus has been in place now for about 15 years. Um, it's co-chaired by Representative Jim Langevin from Rhode Island, Representative Doug Lamborn from Colorado Springs. And it really puts focus on the technology capabilities, and where we are in, uh, in that area. One of the great parts of the DE caucus and what I've been introduced to over the last couple of years is this group of um, defense fellows who come in, which are members of the services that come up for a one-year fellowship on Capitol Hill and really learn the workings of you know, how, how do we um, authorize and appropriate funds for the Department of Defense, as well as all of the other activities that go on there, 
And so education is an ongoing aspect of that. There's a new group of defense fellows that, uh, you know, were seated this week uh, up there on Capitol Hill. I had the pleasure of meeting with one of them yesterday um, and organizing a, an upcoming presentation to them on kind of where the state of the art is within directed energy, largely focused on those fellows that are within, you know, whose members are part of the DE caucus. Um, and they tend to do a lot of advocacy for us. We also, excuse me, um, have very strong congressional support, as you've noted. Um, one of our key supporters within that is uh, Senator Martin Heinrich from the state of New Mexico. Now, many people don't know that Senator Heinrich started his career not as a politician, but as an engineer at the Air Force Research Laboratory at Kirtland Air Force Base, working as a high-power microwave research engineer developing systems for those capabilities, you know, 20 plus years ago. And so because of that experience, he brought that with him uh, in his, into his political career and has become a strong advocate for the DE portfolio. Likewise, uh, our, our two chairmen of the caucus have been in position for a very long time and they show a lot of interest. And I get to interface with their staffs primarily to um, advocate for opportunities within the community and keep them updated on these deployments, similar to the things we've talked about here, as well as then they can uh, respond specifically for information from the services on the various systems that are in development. I think that's one of the, the, the fun things about, you know, when we talk about congressional education and, and helping congressional staff and members of Congress learn these rather technical and complicated issues is there are a fair number of members really when you get down to it that actually do get it they they understand it they under they have the background that uh either like senator heinrich uh on who, who worked on that started his career out on it um i remember with congressman langevin we had him on the show a few months ago back in the summer you know his office contacted me like five years ago asking for one of our electro electronic warfare 101 articles because they like to sit down and read them and talk about them and and it just fascinates me that it's it's fun to learn the background of this some of these members and and how they how they think and what their experience is because they do understand this at a technical level which helps us tremendously in pushing some of these shared interests uh through through some of the, the uh, authorization and appropriations bills absolutely and and I'm, I'm always thrilled when I get an opportunity to go up there and work with them because, as you noted, um, within within my DE caucus members, there's enthusiasm for what's going on in the community. They want to know what's the state of the art. What can we do to help? Where are the areas where, um, you know, with a little push from Congress, they might be able to influence our experimentation campaigns, our prototyping activities, and really help with the transition of these from a you know kind of a niche capability into the broader warfighting capability for the Department of Defense, many of them sit on committees within uh, on, on the House and Armed Service committees and largely focused on the emerging threats and capabilities that we see. And so, as we migrate from these science and technology demonstrations and prototypes into production capabilities. They want to know what is our production readiness? What's the industrial base readiness for us to be able to meet the demand signal 
given that uh, some of these demonstrations are are successful and are being successful in demonstrating capabilities that are not inherently uh, part of our current warfighting structure. Yeah, and the you use the word enthusiasm, and I think that's true because when you interface with staff and, and members of Congress and staff who are enthusiastic about this, you know that enthusiasm is real because it's not something that is widely understood um, or is not, it doesn't get a lot of headlines so that you know that enthusiasm is something because they understand it and they, they understand the importance of it and want to actually take part in growing that capability set. It's been enjoyable over the over my career to kind of engage Congress similar to, to your effort to educate them and to kind of see that growth. Keeping with the congressional discussion, uh, last month, you know, we, we got the uh, defense authorization bill. And I, I guess now December is the new September when you finish, you know, when you complete the authorization bill for the, the fiscal year. I was wondering if you could take a few minutes to kind of talk about some of the key provisions that were in this year's NDAA and what does that do in terms of setting you up for a, a very active 2022? Well, I will say that um, we were very pleased with the outcome uh, of uh, the DE portfolio in the Defense Authorization Act. Um, they highlighted some areas of significant interest. One of the big ones that they're looking at is the establishment of a directed energy working group that regularly reports back to the congressional committees on the progress of our ongoing technology demonstrations, experimentation campaigns, prototypes, and the, the transition of those technologies into a warfighting capability. And so that's a big deal that was captured in the 21 NDAA and is now coming to fruition. Um, there's some money. There's, I mean, obviously everything revolves around the, uh, the funding allocations of that. Uh, we have seen the DE portfolio stay relatively balanced at, uh, you know, billion dollars plus in the S&T portfolios over the last couple of years. And that is due to the leadership we get out of Congress that ensures that a steady level of funding in this technology area is important to both make great, great progress in our technology demonstrations, but also to start supporting the industrial base um, and you know our ability to make that transition point, that pivot point into manufacturing and where, where dollars can be applied to really get us and our industrial base capability to where we want it to be to meet that demand signal that we see coming up in the 22-23 timeframe. The 23 budget uh, that's being you know finalized as we speak um, is really going to be kind of the, uh, the, the tipping point that we see where, we, uh, where we're looking for transition money uh, and money not just in the S&T portfolio, but now in the productization and the production of uh, directed energy capabilities for the Department of Defense. Great. We have a few minutes left. I just wanted to kind of wrap up the conversation with talking a little bit about going back to depths. And, you know, we talked a lot about kind of what to expect in 2022 here. The way that DEPS, you know, has their events that you you basically have, I guess, three or four key events each year. You have your S&T conference, which AOC is going to be in attendance at. You have your system symposium. You have your test and evaluation conference. I think that's coming up next in Albuquerque. Could you talk a little bit about some of the events that you have planned looking forward and what key issues you anticipate discussing at these uh, as a way of, you know, basically encouraging some of our listeners to, to, to 
add depth events to their portfolio of, of shows that they go to, what are some of the things that you're going to be looking at uh, to discuss here in, in your early shows? Well, thank you. And, um, and you're right. We, this year in 2022, we have four major events that we're focused on. Upcoming the first week of February is our test and evaluation conference that we hold in conjunction with ITEA, um, the International Test and Evaluation Association. Um, and really, that's focused on the test and evaluation capabilities within the Department of Defense for you know, evaluating these new technologies and how we bring them forward into uh, warfighting capabilities. You mentioned our Science and Technology Conference, which is our annual symposium, which will be held in Mobile, Alabama, the end of April this year. That is the technical conference that, uh, that you referred to earlier in the discussion of, you know, man, if you want to if you want to come and figure out what where the state of the art is in the technology and high energy lasers and high power microwave, that's the conference to attend. In conjunction with that, we hold an education workshop for our scholarship uh, awardees to present their work uh, in the uh, teeny world or in uh, the uh, DE world, I should say, uh, and, and really, you know create an opportunity for that next generation of engineers and scientists to interface with the older generation and have an opportunity to, uh, to be introduced to the community. One of the unique features is that um, we hold a biannual event in the UK. Uh, they have, we have information exchange agreements uh, for both high energy lasers, high power microwave that allow us to share information back and forth um, at a classified level uh, with our partners in the UK, both uh, with the Ministry of Defense and their industry partners, our Department of Defense and our industry partners. And so that's kind of a unique opportunity. And then as you brought up our system symposium, which is really focused on bringing the warfighter and, and their perspective into how are these demonstrations going, the prototyping, experimentation campaigns, those type of things, what are the lessons we learn out of that and how can we apply those to future systems so that maybe we don't have to stub our toes time after time after time as we go through the process of bringing that capability from a technology demonstration into a warfighting opportunity. We're definitely looking forward to uh, being in attendance at the SNT conference in, in Mobile, Alabama. It'll be the first time we've gone to that conference. I, I've been to the, your your system symposium a few times now, and and it's a great conference. So we're looking forward to kind of seeing some of the other shows. But uh, really, Mark, it's it's great to have you on on the show today, and it's all the time that we have right now. But uh, we definitely like to uh, thank you once again for taking time to join me here on from the crow's nest and give us an update. I'm sure that we'll have you back on uh, hopefully a regular basis here to give us some updates on, on, on some of the milestones that you reach over the course of, of the year moving forward. Uh, thank you, Ken. It's, it's a great opportunity. And I believe the collaboration that occurs at, uh, at the level between the Directed Energy Professional Society, the Association of Old Crows only enhances uh, the overall capabilities there. We learn from you, you learn from us, and together as a community, we deliver capabilities for um, the soldiers, sailors, airmen, and Marines that defend this country. That will conclude this episode of From the Crow's Nest. I want to thank my guest, Mark Neese from the Directed Energy Professional Society. Please tell your friends and colleagues about our podcast and our sister podcast, The History of Crows, and help others discover them by giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Thanks for listening.
Fast Labs, powered by BAE Systems, is at the forefront of advanced technology and defense research, development, and production. They're pushing boundaries, breaking barriers, and innovating for a safer world. Check them out at www.baesystems.com/fastlabs.